0: This is a warning. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault, rape, and gang violence. This portion of the episode might not be suitable if you are sensitive to this type of content, so please be forewarned. Also, please don't listen with young children. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On today's episode, The Asylum Seekers.
1: Isn't that nice?
0: A few weeks ago, I saw a really upsetting post on social media. I know, upsetting posts are everywhere on social media. But this was particularly upsetting because it was a comment in response to the death of a seven-year-old Guatemalan girl who'd made it to the southern border of the United States with her father, only to die of dehydration, exhaustion, and shock while in U.S. custody. And her name was Jacqueline Call. In this comment, the woman said, Well, it's the parent's fault. Why would any parent be so irresponsible as to put a child in danger like that? Now, the woman who made this post, she said in her profile that she was a conservative and that she was also a mother. And I only mentioned the fact that she was a conservative because she was basically parroting the position of the current administration. Back in December, Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, made a comment on Fox News about the same case saying, you know, this is just a very sad example of the dangers of this journey. This family chose to cross illegally. Now this is a point of view that's often been repeated by members of this administration, but this rhetoric has a purpose. It allows their base, many of whom are parents and caretakers and nurturers, it allows them, their constituents, their base, permission to discard all empathy. Because if we tell them that cruel policies like family separation or tear gassing toddlers are not the fault of the administration that they support, but it's the fault of the migrant parents and asylum seekers themselves, this absolves them of all guilt. Because if we're really thinking rationally, we know that no parent would put their child in that much peril if they weren't absolutely desperate. But here's the thing. The asylum process has been around for ages. It's only in the news now because of this manufactured crisis at the southern border. And another fact that's rarely mentioned by this administration is the fact that asylum seekers come from all over the world. In fact, according to data available from the Department of Justice, the country with the highest percentage of citizens granted asylum in the U.S. was China at 36%. Now, there were other countries that were on this list, including Ethiopia, Somalia, India. But Mexico was actually fifth. Now, this data is from 2016. And, you know, there were other countries from Central and South America on that 2016 list. But, you know, truthfully, a good percentage of asylum seekers arrive by plane. But you wouldn't know that. My point being is that Americans are being given an incomplete picture of the asylum process. And that's where today's guests come in. Joan Hodges-Wu is the founder and executive director of the Asylum Seeker Assistance Project, or ASAP. And I'm also joined by Anam Rahman. She's an immigration attorney who's also on the board of the Asylum Seeker Assistance Project. The organization was founded in 2016, and it's a nonprofit dedicated to serving asylum seekers in the D.C. metro region. ASAP handles tough asylum cases like the ones you rarely hear about on the news, and you won't hear about from this administration. Here is Joan describing one such case of a Congolese family who sought asylum in the U.S.
1: We have a family right now um, that we're working with. The father was an accountant in his country of origin in Congo. He and his wife have two lovely children. As he got higher up and higher up in his professional career, he started thinking more about what kind of country do I want to leave my children? And in the course of those conversations, he started Getting politically active. Because he has a financial background, he was recruited by an opposition political party and they asked him to keep the books. He knew it was dangerous because he knew that by keeping the books, he would have access to the names and the addresses and the, you know, all the contact information for donors to that political party. And that was highly sensitive information. One night, secret police came to his house and they asked for the The books, basically, he didn't keep them at his house. He knew he knew enough to not do that. And so he said, I, I don't have them. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know about this political party. I'm not active. But the, the situation really spooked him. So he goes to the office the next day and the office is completely ransacked. Clearly, someone is looking for these books because they want to know who's supporting this oppositional party. They want to go after the donors. So he comes back home and his, his wife is not there. His children are not there. It turns out they've been arrested by police officers and his wife has been taken to a police station to be questioned. It became painfully clear that he could not stay. His wife could not stay. If this was the beginning of what would be, you know, continual harassment, arrests, um, possibly torture, this was not living. And so they had a very uncomfortable decision. You know, do we stay? Do we uproot everything that we know and love, all of our responsibilities to our family, to our community? They decided to to leave.
0: So the family eventually arrived in the D.C. area where they'd hoped to stay with relatives. But once they were here, that living situation became untenable. So they were forced to move out with their small children in tow. Because asylum seekers aren't immediately eligible to work, they often face poverty and even homelessness. At one point, this family was actually homeless. But after contacting an immigration attorney who put them in touch with Jones organization ASAP, they were able to get temporary jobs and a place in a family home. So I asked Joan how common it was for asylum seekers to have family in the States.
1: Well, so I think it's a misconception that people, they don't have any uh, contacts here in the United States. I mean, people don't throw a dart at a map and they're like, I'm going to America. I mean, they're here because there's a reason, there's some sort of pull factor. And for most of them, there is some kind of friend or family member. But the type of support that friend or family member can provide is really on a case by case basis. I have some clients, they are just embraced by extended family as soon as they arrive. Quite frankly, they do so much better because they they feel like people care what happens to them. But then I also see the opposite. I've had people who arrive with the number of someone they have never met in their pocket and they don't know who's going to pick them up from the airport. They don't know how to use a public payphone. And it, it really is sort of flying by the seat of their pants. It is a harrowing journey to think about what could be. And it really, again, it speaks to the dire circumstances that clients find themselves in. No one wants to be an asylum seeker. This is an absolute last resort.
0: You know, Joan, there are people who, you know, although they do make it safely to the US, they have to leave family behind. So what kind of circumstances would make someone flee and, you know, leave their spouse or their children or, you know, their parents behind?
1: So for example, I have a a family that ASAP is working with right now. And the father was a journalist who wrote and published a damning story story about the political party in power, as soon as that story was published, secret police came to the house. Um, they broke the arm um, of the oldest child. They detained the journalist's wife. The younger children were told to run into the night. The The eldest child's arm was broken. The The mother was detained. The, the type of communal terror that Many parts of the world experience that we just have no concept of here in the United States. It's hard to fathom, but I meet with lots of people and we have to process the survivor guilt of what it means to have left where others stayed and died. Um, these are really life and death decisions that people make. They don't make them lightly. And so to leave everything with the hope that one day you will live safely with your family, it's it's not an easy decision. So I'd like to
0: just go back to the southern border again. So um, I want to talk about the claims that it's irresponsible for parents to bring their children on this journey, Right. But a lot of these places have really high homicide rates, high levels of violence. And in Guatemala, you know, there's extreme poverty and, you know, children risk malnourishment. So Anam, can you talk about the choice that these parents have to make?
2: Sure. I mean, I think that parents only would bring their children on such a harrowing journey if they were escaping grave conditions. I think parents have that instinct to protect their children and keep them safe and the journey is perilous. It's, it's a difficult decision, speaking specifically about Central American migrants, but also a lot of people from all countries who are seeking asylum. And they're escaping persecution, which is serious harm or torture, is specifically with the Central American asylum seekers, non-state private actors that are incredibly dangerous, primarily gangs and narcotraffic organizations, have such a tight rein on all of these countries and the governments are ineffective at protecting their citizens. And that's why these people are coming here. That's why they're seeking asylum is, is to be safe because their governments can't protect them.
0: So the journey, I mean, it's pretty dangerous, right? I mean, apparently, it's taken months. Some groups started in the spring of 2018. And they still hadn't arrived to the border, you know, by by autumn. Obviously, they're often traveling with small children or babies. And there was one statistic that I read that said that, you know, four in 10 women are sexually assaulted or raped. So can you tell me what you know about what this journey is like?
2: Uh, They're facing a lot of challenges. Um, There's no set procedure or no set path that each of these people take to get to the United States. Typically, they're walking. I would say for the majority of that trip, they're walking to the United States through Guatemala, through Mexico. Some people pay handlers, they're known as coyotes in in Spanish, to assist them in traveling to the United States. There is serious risk of harm, not only to women, but there is a high rate of sexual violence against women and children, but to everyone, because these are very vulnerable people who are desperate Seeking refuge, and they'll do anything that they can to get to the United States. They've left everything their families, their communities, their employment to come to the United States. And, and it's, it is dangerous, and people take advantage of that. But I would say most walk, there is some busing, but it is primarily on foot.
0: So can you describe the difference in the process between the Obama administration and the current administration? Because one of the claims that you often hear is that the Obama administration did the same thing. Can you describe what the differences are here?
2: Well, there's the typical process and then there's the process that we've been seeing with the Trump administration. Legally, when someone crosses the border and indicates a fear in returning to their home country that kicks off a process known as the credible fear process, especially if this person hasn't been to the United States before. That person would be detained and they would be interviewed by the asylum office to determine if they have a credible fear of persecution based on one of the protected grounds under asylum law. And only if they are found to have a credible fear of persecution do they then usually get released. Either they have to pay a bond or maybe they have an ankle bracelet to track their GPS movements. And then they're able to move to where they want to live in the country and they can then seek asylum through the immigration courts. Uh, what we're seeing with this administration is that they are now prosecuting individuals for illegally entering the United States. That was not happening, uh, definitely not with as much frequency as it now is under this administration. So what's happening, and this is affecting the children. And I believe that this is what happened with Jacqueline is that they were prosecuting the father for illegal entry. And that results in the separation between the parent and the child, which we've been seeing all over the news. And that's when, you know, horrible tragedies happen, like what happened with Jacqueline.
0: When we talked earlier, I was actually conflating the definition of an asylum seeker with that of a refugee. And it's really an important distinction to make for for legal reasons. Can you explain what the differences are?
2: So um, an asylum seeker is someone who is seeking asylum in the United States, which means that they are still applying for that benefit and it hasn't yet been granted. Typically, once you file, you're eligible for work authorization in the United States and you can wait for your case to be heard either before the asylum office or before an immigration court. And I'll get into the difference between those two venues in one second. Um, that's different from an asylee. An Asylee has been granted asylum in the United States. After you're granted asylum and after you're an asylee, after one year, you can apply for your green card. And after several other years, you can apply for your citizenship. So uh, that is one of the big benefits of Asylum and being an asylee is that it is a path to citizenship in the United States. That's a little different from a refugee, although there is a little bit of an overlap because to get asylum in the United States, you must show and it's your burden to show that you meet the definition of a refugee. As is obtained from international law. But a refugee, in the legal sense, means someone who's actually already demonstrated that they meet that definition from outside the United States, and they've been placed here in the United States through the reinstatement program. Once you are seeking asylum in the United States, you can either seek asylum defensively or affirmatively. Affirmatively means that you are seeking it with the Asylum Office, which is part of U.S. Citizenship Immigration Services, and and it's part of the Department of Homeland Security. So that venue is for people who maybe entered lawfully or maybe entered without the proper documentation but are not yet in immigration court or deportation proceedings. So they would apply for that affirmatively, which means proactively with the immigration office. Uh, Defensively, on the other hand, is someone who's already been placed in removal proceedings, and they're seeking that benefit. They're applying for asylum in front of an immigration judge. So that's before the Department of Justice. And these would be people who maybe crossed the border and were immediately apprehended by immigration and are now in front of an immigration judge. Or maybe it's someone who's been in the United States for 15 years and maybe they got a speeding ticket. And now they're in ICE custody and now they're seeking asylum before an immigration judge. But those are the different venues that people are talking about when they're applying either defensively or affirmatively.
0: So what determines whether an asylum seeker's claim is granted?
2: Um, for your asylum claim to be granted and for you to become an asylee you have to demonstrate to the U.S. government that you have a well-founded fear of persecution for a protected ground and that the government is unable and unwilling to protect you. So you to have a well founded fear of persecution that means that you either suffered past persecution persecution is serious harm to you such as death threats or or rape or or other serious forms of violence and it's on account of a protected ground so On account of a protected ground means that you need to show that there's a specific reason why you're being targeted. Um, One of those protected grounds could be because of your race, your religion, your nationality, your political opinion, or because you're a member of a particular social group. Um, So there's a big misconception that people think that just because something bad has happened to you somewhere in the world, you're then eligible for asylum. And that's just not true. You have to show that you were targeted and you were persecuted or you have a fear of future persecution because of something that's unique about you, like your political opinion against the government, or maybe it's because of your indigenous race, or maybe it's just because you're a woman in El Salvador. And if you're being persecuted for that specific reason, you may have a claim for asylum. If you were just a random victim of violence or extortion, you're going to have a much more difficult claim. And if it's a non-state actor, as we touched on, you have to show that the government would be unable or unwilling to protect you. With a lot of these Central American claims, it's when the government is just so ineffective or so corrupt that they're unable to give effective protection. In other claims, like a lot of African countries and in even some European countries, sometimes the persecution is from the government itself. So then you could show that you wouldn't get any meaningful protection from the government in those claims either.
0: But you know, how are people supposed to get evidence that they need to make their claim if they are fleeing their own government and, you know, some of these cases, I mean, it seems like it would be impossible to be able to get any supporting documents that they would need from their country of origin if they're actually fleeing danger.
2: It's very difficult. You have to show under the Real ID Act uh, reasonably available corroborative documentation. So you do need to corroborate your claim. You do need to testify credibly. And Joan can probably speak to this better than I, but, you know, she's also a trauma torture expert. So even the trauma that so many of these applicants have faced really affects their ability to remember and talk about these very difficult um, memories that in many times, they, you know, they've tried to repress.
1: We see a number of folks who come to us that would meet the diagnosis for major depressive disorder, for a generalized anxiety disorder, for post-traumatic stress disorder. We have clients that have regular nightmares. They have flashbacks. They have feelings of hopelessness, helplessness. Unfortunately, it is not uncommon to see someone who has survived the worst of mankind back home, they now come to the United States and the environment they find themselves in is so inhospitable that it, it, all of these symptoms manifest and, and really just activate all at once. For survivors who experience torture in their country, if they come to the United States and are met with a supportive network of people who care about them, they do far better. That's why community support and um, mobilizing volunteer activities is so important here at ASAP. By contrast, if you have a survivor who has experienced torture back home and comes to the United States and is not met with, with care, is not connected to a network, that's when we really start to worry because that's when people start feeling that there isn't a future. That's when we start seeing a lot of suicidal ideation.
0: Joan, you'd mentioned a case to me involving a girl from Honduras who had to leave her family behind. And I think that's really important because the story speaks to the risks that are unique to women and, you know, what women often face. And for the listeners, I do want to warn you that this story does describe rape and sexual assault and gang violence. So if you are sensitive to this type of content, please be forewarned, you know, leave the room or, or turn the volume down. So, Joan, can you talk about the girl that sought asylum from Honduras who came to your organization for help?
1: So I had a client um, from Honduras um, when we we met. She was 18. She was a a beautiful girl. Um, She had these gorgeous, striking green eyes. You got the feeling right away that she was just full of a lot of sadness. Slowly, as we began to work together, I got to know more about her story. We don't ask clients to share their reasons for coming to the United States right away. But oftentimes, when a certain level of trust and rapport is built, they do want to share. And so in in her particular case, she lived in the capital city. It was her, her mom, her dad, um, and she had four sisters. And her dream in life was to become a pediatrician. She had had a sibling who, who died from a disease as a child and it stuck with her. This was something that she could do to make a difference. And one day she was walking home from school and a boy she didn't know who was just a few years older than her approached her and, and started talking to her. And um, the young man said, you're going to be my girlfriend when she heard that, she was like, what? No, 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 um, I'm, I'm not your girlfriend. And the young man said, no, you're going to be my girlfriend. I'm, I'm going to make this happen. And, you know, she thought that he was trying to woo her. And so she kind of blew it off. And she went one way and he went another. So it turns out that this young man was a member of a gang, and she knew that because of the way that he was dressed and because of tattoos, but um, she did not sort of realize the magnitude of what was about to happen. So the next day, she was walking down the same way that she took to get home from school, and the boy came up beside her again and started talking again, but this time he was with four of his fellow uh, gang members. She knew something was wrong, and she turned to run, and in doing that, the gang Gang members pushed her into an alley and they they proceeded to rape her. She was gang raped by five men, beaten. All sorts of terrible things happened in that alley. And then when they were finished, they said, you're going to be my girlfriend. Because if you're not, I know you have four sisters and I know where you live. And if it's not you, it's going to be one of them. What do you do when this is your life? When we're talking about like your presence is a risk to your family, what do you do in this situation? And so she went back home that day and she had to make an impossible decision. Do I stay and endanger my entire family? Do I become the girlfriend of a gang member or do I leave? And in her situation, she left. But that choice was Heartbreaking. She was very close to her family. She is a young girl. She was eighteen years old, and she's forced to make a decision that no one should make. We're fortunate that she found the organization and we were able to provide a variety of different services and support, but she needed she needed counseling. She had dreamed of becoming a, a doctor before. Her career path completely changed course, um, possibly because of the trauma that she experienced. There is the life before and there is the life after.
0: So what do asylum seekers want Americans to know?
1: Asylum seekers are scared. Uh, before the Trump administration took power, asylum seekers looked to the United States as a safe place. America had a reputation in the world as a country of hope and refuge and freedom. The administration has completely turned this this, this on its head. Now, so many of our clients are feeling like they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And whether it's this threat of denying citizenship to immigrants that use public services or requiring asylum seekers to pay an application fee, the stress has become all-consuming.
2: I think that there's a misconception that seeking asylum in the United States is a walk in the park. Uh, I think that that's part of the rhetoric with this administration that we're just, you know, letting quote unquote these people in and then they're just staying in the United States and having a grand old time. And that's just not the case as ASAP clients know very well. But within this broken system, which is completely overburdened by a backlog of cases where officials, whether you're at the asylum office or the immigration court, are constantly losing files. They're constantly rescheduling interviews. They're constantly keeping cases in security checks for years and years. And these people are separated. You know, these applicants are separated from their families in many cases. They're here in a foreign country. Where they maybe don't know the language as well, and they're not surrounded by their friends and family. And, you know, that's, it's not easy. And every day is, is difficult where they don't know if they're going to get an interview. They don't know if their case is going to be granted. And just to have to plan your life not knowing is, is incredibly difficult. And as an attorney, you know, it's just an uphill battle in these cases where we're getting new judges every day and judges are retiring and, you know, the case law is changing on a day-to-day basis and we're having to re-scramble our legal arguments and our evidence to match these ever-changing standards. It's, it's very difficult and, and that's definitely taking a toll on these asylum seekers as well.
1: I think asylum seekers want Americans to know two things. They have come to the United States because they believe the United States is a country of laws that will protect them from the danger that made them flee their homes in the first place. I think the second thing that asylum seekers want Americans to know is that asylum seekers want to prove themselves. They know they owe a debt of gratitude to America and the American people, and they have every intention of paying it forward.
0: Well, Anam, Joan, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this really, really important topic. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Joan's organization, please visit their website at AsylumProjectDC.org. They are always in need of volunteers and, of course, donations. Again, it's AsylumProjectDC.org. I'll also leave a link to their organization in the show notes and on electorate.com. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And until next time, keep up the good fight.